0: And hey, we'll be in Psalm 88 this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, maybe a few minutes before we get there, but you can turn there, put a finger there, and let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we're thankful to be here. We're thankful we have a place where we can meet and, uh, and hear Your Word, share this together. We're thankful, Lord, we can worship You that we have the freedom still to do so. We're thankful, Father, for what You are doing and how You, how you oppose, Lord, the darkness in this world. We're thankful that there is truth. And we're thankful, Lord, that, that we have opportunity to hear the truth. And I pray, Father, every ear would be open this morning and every heart would be ready to receive. Lord, I read a, a quote this morning. Uh, Someone saying that these are hard times, but they are not the end times. And Lord, I, I disagree. I think the signs of the times are very clear. And so I pray in these last days, Father, you would encourage your church. And you would build up your church in the name of Jesus Christ to stand firm and faithful and joyful, rejoicing even in the difficulties of this world, knowing that the soon and definite coming of Jesus Christ is near. And we look forward to that day, we live toward that day. And now, Lord, in this moment, we seek to lift You up and to praise Your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the joyous fall festival called Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. During the feast, He stood up and He declared in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The following spring, Jesus, the light of the world, would face the darkest night, not just in his life, but in all history. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that a Roman cohort surrounded him. John 18.3 tells us that, and if you didn't know, a cohort typically was 600 men. But Jesus looked at the chief priests and the officers of the temple standing there. He didn't look at the Romans. He didn't worry himself with the political or military power of the day. He looked at the religious leaders, and he said in Luke 22.53, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And the next morning, Jesus was crucified. When the sun should have been at the peak of the sky, Matthew tells us suddenly in Matthew 27.45 from the 6th hour that would have been noon to the ninth hour, which would be 3pm, darkness fell across the entire land. I begin with this to say that Jesus made the choice as simple for us as turning on a light switch. Jesus says, here's the choice. Choose light or choose darkness. And there is no in-between with the Lord. There's no shadow land. There is light or there is darkness. And we are called, each of us, everybody, everybody in all humanity, called to make that choice. Light or darkness. You know, it's in the dark that fear emerges. And it's in the dark that we can't see where we're going. In the dark where there's no clarity. There's no visual acuity. there's, There's no understanding. They're in the dark. And yet... For all the negativity of the darkness, we struggle as human beings with what Conrad once called the heart of darkness. We have this draw to the darkness, this this tantalizing sense of the darkness, and yet Jesus said, light or dark, the choice is yours. Psalm 82, verse 5 said, "...they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness." John wrote in John 1.5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 3.19, Jesus said, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And it's ironic that today marks, today marks the American celebration of darkness. Halloween. From children trick-or-treating in cute costumes with buckets or bags of candy to haunted houses tantalizing people with scenes of blood and gore and murder and dismemberment. And it's all in good, clean, fun, right? Halloween. Since today's Halloween, I want to do a little background check on it. I'd like to talk about it before we get to the Psalm this morning, and I think you'll see the application. I'm not out to smash anyone's pumpkin. And I want to give you background for me. My family and, and truly, I grew up with Charlie Brown Halloween. I've always loved that up till about this year. And we took our kids trick or treating when they were little, and now that we have little ones again, Cheryl and I have revisited this this whole concept of this whole day. But we always trick or treated and, and carved pumpkins and watched the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, one of my favorite, you know, television shows. I've never gone in for the bloody, gory, violent, sick side of Halloween. And yet there has always been something in me that hasn't felt quite right. And what I think most people tend to do is just let that not quite rightness, we just kind of will shove it aside, because you know what? Snoopy is cute. Charlie Brown's funny, and it's just pumpkins, man. So I want to talk about this a little bit. Three things to know. The roots of Halloween. Number one, the roots of Halloween. Centuries before the light came into the world. Hundreds of years before Christ, the ancient Celtic people in, observed a festival. And that festival is called, or was called, Samhain. Samhain, uh, if you're spelling it out, it's actually spelled out S-A-M. H-A-I-N. It looks like Samhain, but it's Samhain. And that was every October 31st. They would celebrate this, the ancient Celts. It was on the eve of the Celtic New Year, and it always marked the end of the fall harvest and the beginning of the winter season. They really only looked at the, at the world in terms of two seasons, the summer season, spring-summer season as one, and then the, the winter season as the other. And so on this New Year's Eve for the Celts, They believed the power of the sun was giving way to a time of prevailing darkness. On this night, the Celts believed that the veil between the living and the dead was at its thinnest, which would allow those who had departed before, the spirits of the dead or evil spirits, to cross literally into this world. Crossing that veil... And they would come into the world and were were known to apparently destroy crops and kill livestock and even steal babies. There was a lot of fear associated with this one night. The high priests of the Celts were the Druids, priests of, of Celtic paganism. And they saw it as the best opportunity all year long to communicate with the dead because that veil was so thin. And it was believed by some that the power of the, quote, Lord of Darkness was available on this night to foretell the future. Who was that Lord of Darkness? You might jump to a conclusion and say Satan, but he had another name that would be familiar to you Bible students, Baal. The Lord of Darkness, worshipped by the Druids, was Baal. Same Baal as we read about among the Canaanites many rituals and traditions sprang up from this dark and ancient belief system this ancient paganism that's the basic roots of Halloween you can go deeper into it and studying it but secondly note this the rites of Halloween the rites of Halloween what did the Druids do on this night? well they would build huge Sahuang bonfires to guide passing souls as bright lights for those souls and in these fires they offered up sacrifices animal and even human In the morning, as they sought to appease the gods and spirits passing through, these bonfires would blaze all night long. And in the morning, the only thing left of those sacrifices would clearly be ash and bone, which is where the name bonfire comes from, bone fires. That's what they called them. The Celts would leave food out for these traveling spirits, put it out on the porch or on the front of their home, hoping that a treat would prevent an evil trick from taking place on that night. And over the years, descendants of the Celts continued to observe the festival by dressing up themselves as evil spirits and roaming from house to house demanding treats to prevent tricks. They would carve demonic faces into hollowed out turnips and drop candles inside them, which was the beginning of the legend that you may have heard of the jack o' lantern. And what's interesting is the face that you most often see, you know, the triangle eyes and the triangle nose and the jagged mouth, that was an ancient symbol for a damned soul. (laughs) I think there's going to be a lot of... this morning. Other customs and games became common fare along with Sahween, one of which assured a person, good luck if they could pull an apple out of of water barrel with their teeth, apple bobbing. By the way, did you hear how the McDonald's employee... Burned himself on Halloween night, he he was bobbing for french fries. Never a good idea. (laughs) Well, Christianity spread through the 3rd and 4th centuries especially on into, into Europe. At one time, Christianity and Rome were at odds, but in 312 AD, Constantine came into power. He signed what was called the Edict of Toleration. And Constantine wanted to see a marriage of sorts between Christianity and Rome, try to make peace. He called upon the Christians to help him come to power in the first place, claiming a great vision. And so as this edict of toleration went out, for the first time since the beginning of the church, 283 years, suddenly the church was not targeted by the state for destruction. And so in this, what I would call, objectionable marriage between church and state, Pagan temples were torn down. Pagan practices, however, so entrenched in culture and tradition were often not torn down at all, but were co-opted into the whole process. There are ancient coins that have on the one side a picture of the cross or Christian symbols and on the other side pagan symbols. There were pagan high priests that were just turned into Christian priests in that day. And so number three, the religion of Halloween... Samhain was a practice that held fast, even as Christianity spread throughout Europe. The belief in visiting spirits may have waned to a degree, but the festival and many of the customs remained because it was tradition, man. And so children play-acted the role of costumed spirits. Trick-or-treating and bonfires continued. And in the 700s, finally the church said, we've got to do something to counter the paganism of this one night because the undercurrents of it were still all throughout Europe. So in the 700s, the church came out and decided if you're going to celebrate the dead, at least celebrate the righteous dead. And so they moved a day. They had a day, May 1st, which was considered All Saints Day. It was a day for recognizing and honoring any martyred saint who had died before on All Saints Day. They moved that to November 1st on purpose. All Saints Day would now be November 1st, making October 31st, All Hallows' Eve put it together, the marriage of All Hallows' Eve and Saween Halloween. And that's where we get our background. What about today? I mean, come on, this is America, man. And it's just fun and games, and it's just, you know, kids getting candy, and isn't Halloween harmless? Isn't it just a harmless fall festival in America? Is toying with the darkness really that big a deal? That's the question I've asked but refused to answer for years and years and years as Moses was speaking to the people of Israel, God told Moses to tell them, Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, "...when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire." One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. And that was Old Testament law. And you might say, but Pastor, we're not under law. I agree, we're not. But has God's heart toward evil changed? Would we still today expect God to say, these are evil and detestable practices, and if it's detestable to the Lord, do we want to have anything to do with them? At the end of the age when Antichrist world capital of Babylon falls, Revelation 18:23 tells us, the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. That's speaking of the church. The voice of the church will not be heard in you. For your merchants were great men of the earth, because all the nations were listen deceived by your sorcery. And in her that is Babylon, Babylon, the root of all pagan nations, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Nowadays, neo-paganism is on the rise, even to the point where among young people it's cool. Neo-paganism, witchcraft, Satanism, sorcery, spiritism and the like, is on the rise in an alarming way in America. And many, in fact an increasing number, in America and across in Europe, see Halloween again as a great time for spellcasting, sacrifices, incantations, and the practice of the powers of darkness, all demonic. And if you don't think that human sacrifice is happening on Halloween, you need to read the newspapers. You need to wonder why children still disappear. Why things happen. And things that wouldn't even be talked about in the news such as children who are raised in satanic families for the purpose of being sacrifices. And this is all very, very real. We're out trick-or-treating and there are children that are losing their lives in demonic sacrifice, even today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 tells us the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 8, For you were formerly darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The fruit of light. Last night, if you were here, we had the, the fall harvest festival. It was not a ha- Halloween party of such. It was a harvest festival. And the harvest focused on was the fruit of the Spirit. And it was wonderful. And there were, a, there were dozens of kids here. The turnout was awesome. And if you were here, you saw this. And this barn was looked very different. It was, it was joyful and it was fun and there were games for the kids and there were these nasty corn dogs and there was stuff to do. And the kids went around and they played the games and they, and they got the candy and, and over in the, the modulars there, there were, there were different crafts that the kids can do, all focused on the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, everywhere you look, there was the fruit of the Spirit listed. Leslie did a marvelous job in putting this all together. In fact, if you see her this morning, tell her, good job. Because the focus, again, it just completely... And I was, a little, I was a little tentative, especially over this last month as I've been thinking about these things and studying, thinking, <laughs> you know, what are we doing in the barn? And it was, it was all about light and goodness and truth. First Thessalonians 5.5 5 says, You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. First Thessalonians 5.22, Paul said, Abstain from all appearance of evil. 3 John 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. On Halloween night, many Satanists, witches, practitioners of witchcraft participate in, in a ritual called drawing down the moon. In which the chief witch in a coven becomes a channel for the moon goddess. And during this ritual, all participants are what they are called sky-clad. That is, they're naked. And often either an animal or, as I shared before, a human infant sacrifice occurs. I remember the first time that I really kind of had a check in my heart about this so-called holiday. It was years ago when I went to Knott's Berry Farm's Halloween Haunt. Southern California, the amusement park Knott's Berry Farm would have every uh, Halloween season a Halloween haunt where the whole park became spooky and, and creepy. And we went and, and, uh, and I was a little bit older when I went. And I had gone as a kid. And I'm walking through the park and there, you know, there's scary things happening. Ooh, you know, frightening and, and all in, again, good, clean, fun. And then I wandered into Camp Snoopia, a section there of Knott's Berry Farm. In fact, is the children's section with the little kid rides. And up and down both sides of the fair, thoroughfare were palm readers and fortune tellers. Real ones. You could pay to have your palm read. And I just went, okay, fantasy, fun, play, meeting something real going on. And that was the first time, I think, in my life I went, I'm not sure about this. This week, and it, it was hard to even take Naomi to school, my daughter Naomi is in kindergarten at Fidalgo School and every day from Monday through Friday driving up to drop her off at school there was a witch to greet the children it was one of the teachers dressed in a witch costume pointed hat you know uh, cartoonish but a witch nonetheless trying to get all the kids and their parents to sign up for the Halloween Carnival Festival that happened Friday night and it's a big deal and there was money to be made for the school. And there's a lot of you know, booths all the way around and, and a haunted house that, that does feature gore and dismemberment and death and darkness. And we didn't go. And you know what struck me this week? Halloween is a big deal, but we're not allowed to celebrate Christmas. What's up with that? Wait a minute. They are both religious practices, and that's what we need to understand. Both are focused on religion. It just depends on which religion you're looking at. I'm a daddy whose kids love candy, just like many of you. But something is wrong, and to keep ignoring it is just foolish. Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Look at the heading of the psalm. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the choir director, according to Mahalat Leonat. A masculine of Haman the Ezraite. Haman is the author. It's not the Haman who is the singer-psalmist, who we read about in earlier passages. This is a different Haman. It's also not He-Man, the master of the universe. That's a different guy. (laughs) This Haman is a man who is the son of Zerah and one of the wisest men in the days of Solomon fact, 1 Kings 4 tells us in verse 30, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men, than Etan the Ezrahite, Haman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal. So Haman is listed there as one of the wise men. And as Solomon is described, it's said that Solomon was even wiser than Haman. So this is a wise man that we're looking at here. And again, apparently not the Haman who along with Asaph was a key guy among the Levitical worship leaders for the temple. It's a different guy. He's not a Levite at all. This Haman is an Ezraite, which means he's of the line of Judah. He's a renowned wise man. And that's the man who wrote this psalm. Here's the mood. The psalm is written, note this, according to Mahalat Le'Anot which describes the mood with which this psalm was supposed to be sung or played. Mahalat means whirling around or writhing in labor pain. Leonoth means afflicted, oppressed, and weakened. Peppy song. <laughs> you know, play it like you're in labor, boys. That's what this is about. Pain and writhing and affliction and weakness. And that's how this song is to be presented with heartache. And depression, Indeed, Psalm 88 is the gloomiest and most depressing of all the psalms. It speaks from the deepest place of sorrow in what is otherwise a book of praises. Watch this, verse 1. <coughs> o Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles." And my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit and in dark places in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your ways." Psalm 88 is unique in all the psalms. Other psalms describe hurt and sorrow and pain and difficulty. But this one, unlike any other, offers pain with no relief. Crisis with no response. Sorrow with no comforting or happy conclusion whatsoever. Truly, it's a psalm of the pits. Now, to his credit, the voice of this psalm ascribes everything to the Lord. Not so much in blaming, but in recognizing the only way out of the pit is by the power of God. So he's crying out to God. So, And I went over and over the psalm going, Okay, Lord, what is the redeeming factor here? It's so depressing. What lifts us up even as we read this? And the only thing at first that I could come up with was that it was directed to God. But aside from the direction of this prayer, it is gloomy and depressing and nothing comes out of it that would make you feel like there's resolution here. All, all that we can see is that God is the God of His salvation. Well, verse 8 going on, You have removed my acquaintances far from me. That is, I'm alone. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I'm dejected, he says. I'm shut up and cannot go out. So I'm alone, dejected, I'm closed in. And then he said, My eye is wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. And isn't that just the way of depression? I mean, that is a great description of depression right there. You feel alone, dejected, closed in, and unable to see beyond your sorrow. Just in a dark place. Now, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17... That momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And while that's absolutely true, when we sit in the darkness of the pit, the affliction rarely feels momentary. And perhaps you've been in that place where you were sorrowful and didn't seem like there was any way out. Perhaps you even went to a church on a Sunday morning and you heard the pastor preach that verse Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And you're just thinking, light affliction? This is not light. There's nothing light about this. This is dark. Let the Word assure you that even in the place of greatest pain and sorrow and struggling and darkness, that there is a coming joy. Psalm 30, verse 5, His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Romans 8, 18, Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Further down in that same passage in verse 37, he says, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 5, You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So even in the worst of the worst situation, the Word of God declares, the morning is coming. At your worst, know that light will dawn. Joy comes in the morning. The end is near. Now the thing is, as Haman writes, when I am in the pit of darkness, verse 9 again, my eye has wasted away because of affliction. What does that mean? It means it's hard to think clearly or see straight. When you're in the midst of it, even all these things, are hard. it's it's hard to to wrap your arms around it. And Jesus said in Matthew 6.23, He said, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's a powerful word. If your eye's bad, your body will be full of darkness. And if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You can't even receive the light. The light is shown in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it, as John wrote. Verse 10 Come on, writing here, cries out and asks five questions that are all very depressing. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness, and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness, he says? And these questions in the Hebrew suppose a negative answer and are in a way a ruling on all things dark. Because it's in the darkness that it is difficult to see any good. It's difficult to see at all. Can we go to the darkness for answers in life? People do. Or they think they will find answers there. Can we go and in the darkness discover wonders or revelation or righteousness or loving kindness? Are these things found in the darkness? Absolutely not. So why do we go there so often? Why would we celebrate the darkness at all if nothing good can be found in that place? Verse 13, But I, O Lord, have cried out to You for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before You. A little bit of light there. O Lord, why do You reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I'm overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. You have removed lover and friend, or literally friend and companion, far from me, and my acquaintances are darkness. Hmm. Why does the Lord allow such a psalm to be inserted in the book of praises, especially in this section of the book of praises, the sanctuary psalms? Why here, Lord? The rabbis have a context for this psalm. And as you look at it, I believe you'll see the truth in it. It is believed, in fact, that Haman is not speaking from his own heart at all. In fact... He's doing something completely different than what you might have expected. Look back at the heading again. The heading, it says, note this, a masculine of Haman. It's a masculine. What's a masculine, Bible students? A teaching psalm. This is not a cry of the heart. This is not a shout of sorrow. This is not a prayer song. It's a teaching psalm. It is written to teach a lesson. It's not desperation. No, it's instruction. How so? Haman didn't write this about himself. In fact, he wrote it about a different person, another man in Israel's history, a man who literally found himself in the pit, and that man's name was Joseph. Not Job. I know it sounds kind of like Job. But this is a story of Joseph. Remember the story? Favorite son of his father, Jacob. Favorite among the 12 boys there. And his dad gave him that beautiful coat, which may have been colorful, but more important than colorful, it had big sleeves. It was a big sleeved coat. Why? Because big sleeves in those days were often used to, to hold a manifest of some kind of property or things, and someone who was in charge, who had authority, could pull out of the sleeves and write and, and keep things in the sleeves that were important for the family business. Joseph is given this authority, and his brothers hated him for it. But it got worse. He had some dreams. Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11. Joseph first had a dream. And he told his brothers, he said, I dreamed we were all out in the field and we were tying up the sheaves, those stacks of wheat. And he said, all of a sudden, all of your sheaves started bowing down to my sheaf. And they hated him for it. And then he had another dream. You know, I, I, I don't know, was Joseph just naive that he kept sharing these dreams? I had another dream. Guys, come and hear about my dream. <laughs> oh, Joseph, this is not going to go well for you. <laughs> he said, I had a dream that the sun and the moon and the stars were all bowing down to me. And his brothers were disgusted and they really, they really hated him. So in Genesis 37, verse 18, it says, When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. It's a psalm of the pits, right? Let's throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him, and then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this, the oldest, and he rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So of all the sons, at least Reuben had the right heart. He still was going to stick his brother in a pit, but he thought to later go back and rescue him and pull him out. So it came about, verse 23, when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varicolored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. And the pit was empty without any water in it. You may know the rest of the story. Joseph will go from the pit to Potiphar's house. In fact, it's ironic when Reuben goes back to get Joseph out, he realizes that his brothers have now sold Joseph into slavery. So from the pit to Potiphar, he becomes a slave in Egypt. Picked by the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, Potiphar, who is a ladder-climbing, a success-climbing ladder success man. But he sees potential in Joseph, and the Lord is with Joseph, and very quickly Joseph rises in Potiphar's house until he is in charge of everything un- except Potiphar himself. Joseph has full charge of the whole house. Enter Mrs. Potiphar. Potiphar. Day after day, she comes on to Joseph. Day after day, he refuses her, and finally she makes a grab for him, and he runs, which is one of the wisest things. In fact, the Bible says, flee sexual temptation. Run from it. Turn and run the other direction when that situation presents itself. And that's what Joseph did. Unfortunately, she caught him by his outer garments and held on to it for false evidence. and showed it to her husband and said, See, he was here and he attacked me. And so Joseph goes from the pit to Potiphar's house to prison. And now he's back in the pit. How do you track all that? How, how do you believe in that kind of a situation that God is for you? When every time you turn around you're getting stuck back in the pit. Genesis 39, 19-20 talks about that. And he'll stay there, Joseph stayed there in that pit of prison for two solid years. Until finally he's called upon to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. Because he does some interpreting in prison. And you know the rest of the story. That David goes from the pit to Potiphar to prison and then to Pharaoh. He ends up second under only Pharaoh over all of Egypt. It's a marvelous story. And only God could do something like that. Psalm 88, this haunting psalm, is not of Haman. It's a teaching on the life of Joseph. That's why it's negative. It's why it's depressing. It's why it speaks of the pit. If you stop with the rabbis, this psalm is all about Joseph. If you stop with the rabbis. We're not going to do that. Because I believe this psalm is about someone else. Though it speaks historically of Joseph... It speaks prophetically of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. O Lord, the God of my salvation. O Lord, the God of my salvation. What does the name Yeshua mean? It means, O Lord, the God of my salvation. It's almost as though Jesus' name is imprinted in the first verse of this psalm Yeshua, Yah, Shua, Yah from Yahweh, the Lord, Shua of my salvation. So Jesus' name begins right here. And by the way, the early church fathers understood this about this psalm. From the earliest records we have, uh, second only to the book of Acts, we know the church always read Psalm 88. This was the chosen psalm to be read on Good Friday. Because it's a psalm of the darkness of the pit. And Jesus was there. Remember, He said to the To the leaders, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And Jesus would go into the very pit of darkness itself as he was taken and crucified and killed. From that point in the garden, Jesus was taken and he was led to the house of Caiaphas. Now, I don't remember if we talked about this on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning recently, but there's something interesting there in Jerusalem, the house of Caiaphas. That location has been has been excavated. And they're pretty certain that it is the house of Caiaphas. Based on markings found there, based on its location there in Jerusalem, based on the style of the house and everything else, they look at that and they are pretty sure this is Caiaphas' house. And there in the house, archaeologists discovered at first what they thought was a large cistern which you know a, a well to do person could have in their house a large holding tank for water the problem was that the walls the walls themselves were not plastered over they would have to have been plastered over to hold water so it couldn't be a cistern and then someone suggested well perhaps a granary but other evidence showed that not to be the case and then they made an interesting discovery up in the ceiling part of the walls there in that pit there were notches the same notches that archaeologists have discovered in other places left over from a hand crank but not a crank to lower a bucket a big crank to lower a human to lower a person into this pit and that's where they realized this was a dungeon a holding cell the pit and jesus was most likely when taken to caiaphas's house was most likely lowered into that pit Those of you who went to Israel with us on our last trip, we stood there, and we looked around in there. And it was a a haunting place to be, to think about the fact that our Lord may very well have spent some of the last hours of his life in that pit of darkness. Now, if you go in there, there, there are openings in the top, and there are kind of windows, and you can see out. There would not have been that at all. There's a stairway to get down to the bottom of it. That would not have been there either. Added later. It was discovered by the Byzantines who recognized this location. Again, it's Caiaphas's house. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before You. Let my prayer come before You. Incline Your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. He knew they already wanted Him dead. They had wanted Him dead for a long time. And Jesus knew the time and this was it. I've become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit. Now, strong words. Lord, you did this. You put me here in the dark places, in the depth. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. And nobody, nobody in all history can claim that like Jesus could. All your waves, all your wrath is on me here in this pit. There's something that scientists have been unable to explain there in the pit. Something that makes no sense to them. On the lower south wall, there is a full-sized silhouette of a man in prayer. Now, Shroud of Turan, things like that. I I don't. I don't go in for a lot of these mystical things. Jesus face in a tortilla, you know. (laughs) But this silhouette on this wall is not carved it was not made by flame or fire it's not painted on it is not there by any means known to science and it's it's a very obvious silhouette if you look at it you can you can google it go online and look at at pictures people have taken of it and to look at that the silhouette of of a man kneeling in prayer and i have to wonder and i'm just wondering and please don't take this as you know doctrine but i have to wonder if It's possible that the light of the world could actually have left that imprint when he was in that place of such utter darkness. Jesus in the pit, verse 8, You have removed my acquaintances far from me. Truly, Jesus was all alone. You have made me an object of loathing to them, dejected among all people. I am shut up and cannot go out, as would be the case, lowered into that pit. There was no way out. My eye is wasted away Because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. And again, who else could pray that but Jesus? Every day of his life, he called upon the Lord. Every day, he was in prayer to the Father. Now, I love these next few verses because while the Hebrew author for Joseph may have assumed a no answer, Jesus assumes a yes. Will you perform wonders for the dead? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Yes. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Yes. Jesus would go and declare the truth in the three days of His death. Will your wonders be made known in the darkness? Yes. And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Yes. But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. What prayer? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In the prayer in the morning, Jesus' prayer would have gone up to the Lord. Forgive them, Lord, and would be heard. Father, Lord, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. It is finished, he said on the cross that very next morning. Oh, Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Or again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said. Imagine that place, the light of the world in utter blackness, utter darkness. No light whatsoever in that dungeon. I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. He knew what man wanted to do to him. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. The cross, gang, the worst terror of the cross was the wrath of God. It wasn't the nails of man or the wood of the Romans or even the scoffing and mocking of the Jews. It was the wrath of God. The terrors. The most terrifying thing anyone could ever face as Jesus faced it on the cross. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. Note that he says burning anger. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice just as the sacrifices were placed on the altar and burned before the Lord. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether, and you have removed friend and companion far from me. And my acquaintances are in darkness. <laughs> This is why this psalm ends in darkness. Because while historically it reminds us of Joseph, the suffering servant who went into the pit to save his people, prophetically it is Jesus, the suffering servant, who went into the pit of death to save all people who would call on his name. The light of the world in the place of deepest darkness so that you don't have to go there and I don't have to go there. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse you know well, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so what Psalm 88 declares is, here is darkness. Choose light. Choose the light. Jesus went to the darkness that we might have the choice of the light of the world. Why? And this question I just has been ringing in my head all weekend long. Why, when we have in Jesus the light of the world, do we ever choose darkness? Why do we go there? And I'm not saying that in a blaming or guilt ridden way to you. I'm saying it about myself. Why do I choose the dark? Why do I keep rushing to that place? For God who said, 2 Corinthians 4.6, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So I invite you, like I have been, to struggle with and to ask these questions. What dark things are tantalizing to you? What tricks does the devil play to treat you to sin? Maybe you don't have any issue with Halloween. I know many Christians who have you know, dismissed Halloween years back. So maybe that's not the issue for you. What other darkness draws you, tantalizes you, uh, raises your curiosity? Maybe it's a, a type of novel that you like to read. Stephen King comes to mind. Perhaps it's a game that you enjoy playing or a place your heart goes in the dark hours of the night. What darkness lures you? And the Lord would say to us this morning, choose the light. Choose light. If we know the light of the world, why would we ever choose to walk in darkness again? I hope we'll all consider this tonight but even more so, I pray the Spirit of Christ will lighten up the dark places of our lives, and may the prophecy ring true that Matthew repeated in Matthew four sixteen. It's from Isaiah nine two. The people who were sitting in darkness they saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, light has dawned. I choose light. I choose light the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ seen in the face of Christ Jesus who went to the darkest of places on our behalf that we might have the light of life. Jesus, You declared, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And he who follows Me will not walk in the darkness. Lord, Take us from the darkness and into the place of light joy, righteousness and truth. And I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit will speak against those things that are dark in our lives. That Your light will shine into the shadows and the nooks and the crannies and those hidden places. And You will reveal those hidden things to us, even the ugly things, that we might repent of them and simply walk in light with You. For we know, Lord, if we're walking in the light... As you are in the light, we have fellowship with one another. and The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our transgressions. Praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.